Hi, here's another podcast from the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I'd like to share with you now a book called Confronting Christianity. The author is Rebecca McLaughlin, and uh, she gets some really nice write-ups here regarding her book. Uh, John Lennox, one of my favorite apologists, says this book is compelling reading. And it says readers are going to be expertly guided on a journey uh, as far as confronting Christianity, but even confronting themselves. And finally, in confronting Christ as the altogether credible source of life as God means it to be. So he's very positive on it, as I am. Uh, Sam Albury, who's a speaker and author, says uh, she refuses to duck the biggest challenges to the Christian faith and takes on the hardest questions with empathy, energy, and understanding. Oz Guinness, another uh, terrific writer and good thinker, calls uh, her book A Fresh Voice, arresting arguments, and an easy-to-read style. And I think that sums it up very well. So what she does is she takes on 12 really hard questions for Christians. Uh, she, she subtitles the book, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. So what are these 12 questions? Well, I hope to keep coming back to these um, books when I've made my first round. That's what I'm trying to do with these podcasts, is introduce you to a lot of different books. And then I'm going to go back and do other chapters in them. So I'm still doing kind of the first round of the book. So here are her 12 arguments. I'm just going to look at one of them today. But the first argument that they get, or first question that uh, Christians are often asked, aren't we better off without religion? Number two, does, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? But today, diversity is a big thing, isn't it? So that's a good chapter to read. Number three, how can you say there's only one true faith? Yeah, it sounds pretty arrogant, doesn't it? Number four, doesn't religion hinder morality? Five, doesn't religion cause violence? Six, how can you take the Bible literally? Seven, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Eight, and this is the one that I want to cover, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Number nine, isn't Christianity homophobic? Ten, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? Boy, has that gotten to be a big one in the last ten years or so. Not just that the Bible is full of errors, but that the Bible is evil because it promotes these awful things. Uh, number eleven, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? That's something that everybody asks. How? Why is there so much suffering in this world? So she tackles that in a nice job. Number twelve, the last one, how could a loving God send people to hell? So these are certainly uh, tremendous arguments that uh, she has to develop here because these are good. She's not making it easy on herself. All right, so I wanted to do chapter 8, Doesn't Christianity Denigrate Women? And she starts from the very beginning and talks about it in Genesis and that uh, when Eve is created, she's called a helper. And a lot of people kind of picture the helper as somebody wearing an apron and running around the house, cleaning it up, waiting for the husband to get home to give him his pipe and slippers. But she says, as I've read other places in the Hebrew scriptures, that word helper is actually applied to God himself. So it's not an inferiority role. It's God is our helper. It's think of it as an ally. When you go to war, you want a strong ally to have your back and to take on foes. Um, so she has references there. You see it in Exodus 18.4, Deuteronomy 33.26 and 29. In the Psalms, especially in the Psalms 20, verse 2, 33, verse 20, 54.4, and 118.7. So that's found all over the place. But I think what I'll do instead of the Old Testament, let's move to the New Testament. So this is the one that Christians, of course, are going to depend on. That's the one that gets 
raised and, and attacked as far as being uh, denigrating toward women. So she points out that the portrayal of women in the Gospels, the portrayal is stunningly countercultural. Not cultural, but countercultural. She says, for example, Luke constantly pairs men and women, and when he compares the two, it, the women end up looking better. So, for example, before Jesus' birth, two people are visited by Gabriel and told that they're going to become parents. Well, one is Zechariah, and he becomes John the Baptist's father, and he's actually punished because he has unbelief. But Jesus' mother, Mary, is commended, and so she comes off looking a lot better. Um, the adults that Jesus interacts with and has stories about in his preaching, the adult um, always have women involved in his stories. Jesus always puts women in his stories. He tells about the parable of the lost coin. That's female-oriented. In Luke 18, there's the female prayer of the persistent widow. And even as he approaches crucifixion, he addresses female mourners in Luke 23. So the fact that he kept bringing women into the stories and kept addressing women is pretty amazing. Even in the healing accounts, he heals a mother-in-law. He raises a widow's son out of compassion for the mother. He heals a bleeding woman, a synagogue ruler's daughter. His last healing in Luke is a woman with a disabling spirit, and she praises God. And when the male synagogue ruler gets really upset and objects to that, Jesus calls him a hypocrite. That reminds him of the woman's status as a daughter of Abraham. That's in Luke 13. And he elevates women as moral examples. There's that sinful woman. You all know the story, I'm sure. In Luke 7, Jesus is dining at Simon, the Pharisee's house, and a quote-unquote sinful woman, probably a prostitute, comes and disrupts the party. She weeps on Jesus' feet, wipes the tears with her hair, anoints him with oil, with a special oil. And Simon, of course, is horrified. This is a prophet, and yet he's got this sinful, unholy woman touching him. But Jesus holds up this woman as an example and actually shames Simon in the process, which is odd because in that culture, if you want to think about that time, Simon's one who has every advantage. He's a man. He's religiously admired. He's hosting a dinner party. And yet she comes across as superior in all aspects. So he elevates another low-status woman when he commends the poor widow for her gift of two copper coins. That's not as much money as what the rich are putting in the offering box, but Jesus says this is a far better uh, amount. Luke emphasizes women who followed Jesus. And we meet two of his female friends, Mary and Martha. And it's interesting because Martha, this is Luke 10, Martha's doing the tr traditional female thing, right? She's taking care of the guests and running around getting the food ready. And his sister Mar Mary is doing what? She's, she's being a guy. She's doing a guy's thing there. She's sitting at Jesus' feet with other disciples. And Martha is upset and bustles up to Jesus and says, come on, let's go. And wants Mary to, to start helping her. And Jesus affirms Mary and says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And it's some of the female disciples who visit the tomb after his death. And then they uh, encounter angels who announce the resurrection and interesting, isn't it? The women run to the apostles to tell them this, and they don't believe them. And they're not totally convinced, but the women are. Jesus, in, um, in the book of John, we've been doing a lot here from Luke, but what about the book of John? Well, what do we get there? Jesus goes to that Samaritan woman. Wow, you're not supposed to hang out with Samaritans. And she becomes an evangelist to her people. 
Later, he saves a woman. Book of John again. Saves a woman caught in adultery. John 11, he, he interacts in a tender way with Martha and Mary after the death of Lazarus. In fact, he speaks some of the most famous words to comfort Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. In Matthew 9, he commends the faith of a woman, has this bleeding, and she touches him to be healed. In Matthew 19, he protects women from unwanted divorce. Unwarranted divorce, I should say. So this is a culture that devalued women and often exploited them, but he kept showing their equal status before God. Pretty amazing. Now, what I think is so great about the book is we learn about the author as well, McLaughlin, Rebecca. So she gets to uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and she says how much that rattled her, because in Ephesians 5, we read this, Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Oh, she says, I was an undergrad at Cambridge. She said, I wrestled with that. She said she came from an academically driven, equality-oriented, all-female high school. And now she's reading this stuff. She says, I was repulsed. Wives, submit to your husbands? You've got to be kidding me. She said, I had three problems. One, that wives are supposed to submit. No, wait a minute. She says, Wives are just as common, uh, competent as men. So surely whoever's good in one area of the marriage should have the, the leading role, not have the wife always be second fiddle to the husband. She says her second problem was the idea that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. She says, well, wait a minute. It's okay to submit to Jesus. That's important. That's That's valuable. But I'm supposed to offer that kind of submission to a fallible, sinful man? And then she said the third problem she had with it was just the simple idea that the husband was the head of the wife. And she didn't like that idea of hierarchy because aren't people supposed to be equals, um, have equal status? They're both image bearers of God. Boy, talk about that being countercultural. So she says, when I trained my lens on the command to husbands, then things started to come into focus. So if you read a little further in Ephesians chapter 5, what does it say to the husbands? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so she thought about that. How did Christ love the church? Dying on a cross. He gave himself naked and bleeding to suffer. He, he put the church's needs above his own. He sacrificed everything for the church. She says, you know, I ask myself, how would I feel if this was the command to wives? Wives, love your husbands to the point of death, putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. She says, wow, when I realized this was the, really the story of the gospel itself, it started to make sense. If the message of Jesus is true, she says, no one comes to the table with rights. You've got to come in flat on your face if you're male or female. If you talk about, I've got the right, this is my duty, I've, you know, self-determination. She says, if you come that way, <clears throat> then you have to reject Jesus because he calls everybody to submit to him completely. And uh, so that's a very different view, isn't it? She says, our roles in this great marriage are not interchangeable. Jesus gave himself for us and Christians are supposed to follow his lead. And uh, so I thought that was fascinating. She talks about mishearing Paul on marriage. She says, it's Christ-centered theology in Ephesians 5 that makes uh, a marriage work. She says that sticks in, a, in our 21st century ears like a burr, Ephesians 5, because we have all these ideas now that wives 
are supposed to just kowtow to their husbands and husbands stride around and stick their chests out and thump their chests and dominate women. That's, that's not what it's saying. But she says that's how people see this idea of submissiveness. Paul doesn't say that a husband's needs come first or that women are less gifted in leadership or that women should not work outside the home. In fact, one of Paul's key ministry partners, her name's Lydia, you see her in Acts 16, she did that. She worked outside the home. Look at the Old Testament book of Proverbs. We meet the story of the idealized wife. She's a worker. Paul didn't say women should earn less than the husbands or that a family should privilege the husband's career over the wife. Nothing, nothing like that. Bible uh, doesn't say the husband has to be the primary breadwinner. The, the value of work is measured not in money, but in service. And so Ephesians 5 is a critique of the idea of traditional gender roles that privilege men and put down women. In the drama of marriage, it's the wife's needs that come first, and the husband's drive to prioritize himself is really brought down by what the gospel says. It's a call to pay attention to the character of Christ. So when husbands are called, she says, to love their wives as it says in Ephesians, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that word gave himself up is the same one the gospel is used when Jesus is handed over to be crucified. So that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? So she says, no one who uses the Bible's teaching on marriage to justify something like chauvinism, abuse, or denigration of women has looked at Jesus. So I think that's fascinating. She moves on to talk about, um, see how much time I've got here, maybe a little bit more. I do want to spend a little bit more time on later, after the apostles. How did the church use this? How did the church see those verses? It says, this was an attractive faith to women. In fact, uh, Rodney Stark, historian, talks about the early church being majority female. And even outsiders that criticized Christianity admitted that it had a great appeal to women. In fact, one... Greek philosopher was kind of snarky. He said, Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. And so another critic said, Christianity attracts the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their sex. Wow. Paul actually had women involved in ministry partners that he mentions at the end of Romans. Roman families often gave their daughters away when they were very, very young into marriage, but Christian women could marry later. It says the women, Christian women benefited from Christian condemnation of things like divorce laws, incest, infidelity, polygamy, and female infanticide. They'd been up to the males up to that time to decide. And she said, you know, even to this day, more women than men are Christians. Uh, one professor at Yale said, around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians are women of color. She finally has a section here on women's rights. She says, she agrees. I like this. She says, you know, it's, it's true. The church is under-delivered on its promise to women. But Christians played a leading role in championing women's rights from the early day to right now. First wave feminism in the 1920s, which eventually got women the right to vote and inherit land, that was due to Christian activism. And she's got a note on that. So uh, I won't take her word for it. She's telling us where, where else we can go for further information. Um, Christian leaders like Sojourner Truth advocated for women's rights. 
even the global spread of Christianity is especially due to women. So she said today, though, people say, well, we want freedom, right? It's all about freedom. I, I'm supposed to be on my own. I'm supposed to have more autonomy in rel relation to men. But she says finding uh, things find, have been found in sociology that show that as women gained in their autonomy, being free of men, they slipped in their happiness. So she says, you know, today we, t we talk about freedom and happiness go hand in hand. Just give us more choice and we will be everything we want to be. But she said, you know, some degree of freedom certainly enhances happiness, but too many options seem to deflate the balloon. In fact, they found out that commitment, not total choice, breeds happiness. And so she says, uh, the benefits of marriage over switching sexual partners, people who live together before they marry are more likely to divorce, Men have less significant commitment if they're living in a cohabitation. Women who have a lot of sexual partners have negative psychological effects. Uh, it says on average, married people have married people have more and better sex than their unmarried peers. Husbands and wives, in fact, are instructed to have sex regularly. It's prioritizing a woman's sexual desire as much as the man's. That's in 1 Corinthians 7. So sex is to be valued and treasured. But it's not the ultimate good. It's, it's a part of a covenant um, as image bearers of God and actually a glimpse of greater reality. Well, I think I'll stop at this point. There's more to the chapter. But I hope you see how rich this book is. It's called Confronting Christianity. And it'd be a good one. It's not very long either. So let's see. It's about a little over 200 pages. I know you get a lot out of it and uh, a lot to think of there. Well, thanks for uh, listening. And let's do another podcast soon.